TED Audio Collective. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. My approach is, in a way, I'm going to do anything I like, anything I'm excited about, in any type of medium, in any type of industry, because that's what I want to do. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this episode, Debbie talks with artist Chantelle Martin about her unorthodox career and about the business of making art. You know, we put artists through art school and then we spit them out and then they're taken advantage of. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsors. Design Matters is supported by some wonderful patrons, Adobe and Wix.com. Are you an introvert, an extrovert, or both? I think the human desire for self-knowledge is universal. I mean, who can't get enough of personality tests like Myers-Briggs or the Proust Questionnaire? Well, now there's a new test in town that has been created especially for creative people. It's called Creative Types. It is the brainchild of the Adobe Create team. It's really fun, and it's absolutely free. The Creative Types test is an exploration of the many faces of the creative personality. Grounded in decades of psychological research, the test assesses your basic habits and tendencies. It will help you understand how you think, how you act, and how you see the world in an effort to help you better understand who you are as a creative individual. Take the test and you will also discover which one of eight fascinating creative types you are. You'll learn about your personal strengths and challenges, even your ideal collaborators. Everyone has a creative type. What's yours? Go to mycreativetype.com and you can discover your personal creative personality. Support for Design Matters is also provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. 
Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects. You even have serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Chantelle Martin draws on everything. She draws on cars. She draws on shoes and clothing. She draws on walls and buildings. She draws in black marker on a white surface and usually on a grand scale. She also collaborates with musicians like Kendrick Lamar, with technologists and designers, and with dancers. In late 2018, for the New York City Ballet, she created large-scale drawings in the Performance Hall and Foyer at Lincoln Center. She joins me today to talk about her unique style, her career path, and her many collaborations. Chantelle Martin, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks so much for having me. Ever since you were a kid, I understand that you were obsessed with the number 27. Tell us about that. Quite simple, actually. Just, I really love the shape of it. I think it's the best-looking number of all the numbers. And when you kind of obsess about something, it starts to gain meaning and value in a way. And so I would see the number 27 everywhere as a kid, you know, from bus numbers to footballer shirts to numbers on the road. It, it just became something kind of magical and almost uh, a beacon in my life. And I would follow the number wherever I could. Now, the number seven is an unusual number in that it can both be shaped with curves or straight lines. Which do you prefer? I prefer the straight lines. How come? I haven't thought about it actually before. (laughs) I think it just looks better with straight lines. I was actually thinking you would say curves, that somehow the curves of the two and the curves of the seven somehow complemented each other. Yeah, I'm going to have to think more about that because, you know, that question came out of the blue. So... We might do a little follow-up on this and okay, I'll, good. I'll digest oh, good. that question yeah, I thought about more. it quite a long time wondering what you were going to say about curves versus hard lines. Chantelle, you grew up in southeast London in Thamesmead, a housing project characterized by lots and lots of concrete. And in one of the videos on your YouTube channel, you show a picture of your family where you're posed with five Caucasian-looking siblings. And you've said this about your brothers and sisters— the only brown-skinned girl with an afro in what felt like a very blonde hair, blue-eyed world. You had a different father than they did and said you never fit in. But you said it taught you that you didn't need to. In what way? It's interesting. So we all have assumptions about people, you know, and, and those assumptions, in a way, is our baggage. So, for example, you know, when I was at university, I didn't live at home. And I went back to visit my family one day and... I walked into my house, and when I was walking in, I heard someone shout, Lisa, 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 a black girl just walked into your house. And I stopped kind of stunned and looked around and thought, where? And and then my sister stopped and did the same. I was like, where? And for the first time, I, I really noticed is that, oh, like the outside world see me as something different from my family. You know, I, I have my mum's white, my brothers and sisters are white, you know, I 
we ate the same food, we grew up in the same house. To me, they're my sisters. To them, I'm their sister. It, it's not half or anything like that. But as soon as you step out of your house, you have to play a different role because people see you in different lights and in different ways. And, and, and in a way, you have to wear what people see you as sometimes. And I describe that environment that I grew up as my first passport. Because if there's something very unique or different about you that stands out, and it doesn't have to be physically how you look, it could be the music that you listen to or the interests that you have, people start to treat you differently. In a way, you don't have that pressure to fit in. You know, you have freedom or a passport in a way to be yourself or find yourself or discover yourself because people are not accepting you in a way. And and so in, in many, many, many ways, like, that's refreshing and it's freeing. But as a young person, you don't really realize that that's the case. Did you ever feel oppressed by what people expected of you or thought about you? Quite the opposite. There was no expectations. You know, I'm I'm growing up in a, a place that's, you know, I'm, I'm sure some people had a very happy, healthy, great childhood there. I can't say the same for me. But it's a place where, you know, my mother didn't finish school. Her mother didn't finish school. Most of the kids that I know didn't finish school. Their parents didn't finish school. And, you know, it's a part of this kind of working class cycle where there aren't a lot of positive influences in the area. And therefore, there's no real expectations for you to do anything beyond just be there. And so, you know, we're not seeing scientists and artists and engineers. We're just seeing people that don't finish school or maybe get a job or maybe get pregnant you know, maybe get a council flat or something like that. So in a way, because there's none of those expectations for you to go to university or for you to speak another language or for you to travel, there is a sense of I can do whatever I want because no one's going to tell me what I should do. You've said that artists don't choose the career of being an artist. It chooses them. But while you were growing up, you didn't really have exposure to art or to artists or to galleries you had cartoons. Was that your first entryway into considering or practicing the life of an artist? Totally. So when I was younger, if you asked me, Chantelle, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have said a runner or a cartoonist. And when I think about that, it's like, oh, because cartoons was probably the most creative thing I had a connection to. And I loved all the Disney movies. I loved waking up on Saturday morning, watching all the cartoons. And I felt that that's something that I could do because I enjoy them. I related to them. I felt that there was an artistry to them and even not really knowing what that meant beyond that. But it felt like something that was obtainable or something that I could do. As you were growing up, your mom's partner, Colin, was an alcoholic. And I understand that he wasn't particularly nice to you, which then resulted in you keeping to yourself and creating art in your bedroom. Two questions. What were you making back then, and why wasn't he nice to yeah. you? Wow, we jumped right in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's like, to expand on that a little bit, you know, it's like sometimes when a lot of us are coming from, you can call them non-functioning homes, right? So my mum, she didn't finish school. Her mother didn't finish school. You know, it's a, it's a working class system. There is a lack of um, resources. There's a lack of support. There's a lack of alternatives and so I feel like for a lot of these women they're stuck in a way and so my mum unfortunately ended up in a situation where you know I had a couple of stepdads who weren't nice who did drink who 
who also themselves probably came from complete broken homes and didn't really realize what they were doing either because there was no other real model beyond that. And so I think that, you know, my stepdads weren't very nice to me in a way because they weren't very nice to themselves or anyone else around them. There wasn't any other way than that that was normal you know and growing up where I grew up that was normal it wasn't kind of outside of that and so in a way like I did go into my shell because I'm also very very different from all of my family my family are very loud they're very in your face uh they're they're not shy at all and I don't know you know I I say that I'm shy but I don't know if I grew up anywhere else maybe I wouldn't be but Growing up in the family that I grew up, I did tend to become more reserved. I tend to be more by myself. And I think that that was me, in a way, creating a safe space around myself. That was me creating a bubble around myself. And and so, you know, you survive. And I think I survived by creating this safe place around me and by also getting stuff out through drawing and through writing, not knowing that it was art at the time, but knowing that it was a tool that I had to get these things out. And the writing that I did at the time was very lost. It's very helpless. It's very dark. And I look back at this stuff and I say, wow, that person was in a really, really dark place in a really lost, helpless place. But they were so lucky that they had this gift or this access to pens and paper and a tool to get this stuff out. And I wonder often that people come in from similar situations and backgrounds. If they don't have that, then how do they deal with those things? If they don't have that, how do they get all that anger and stuff out? If they don't have that, how do they evolve and experience their environment? And so the stuff I did was very dark and lots of skulls and red and black and, and you know, words. But But within there, I feel like there was still this fundamental fingerprint or identity that is still recognizably me now, even when I look back. I often think that while artists tend to be more sensitive and see the world through that sensitivity, it's often what saves especially children from brutality. And it's a way to deal with trauma in a way, you know, art in a way It is something that creates connection. It is something that creates experience. But it's also something that as us, as artists, we're able to self-explore and and self-discover and and self-wonder and self-explain. And there are lots of things that we can't really explain growing up in families and with our parents and with these systems and with these patterns. And, and, And maybe art is a tool that somehow gets us closer to these answers and somehow allows us to to discover these things and somehow allows us to understand that it's all okay and that we can create and make and and that's perhaps a different path or an alternative path for us. Even back then, you were using somewhat unconventional canvases for your artwork and your writing. You draw characters underneath your bed, on the insides of your curtains. What drew you to drawing on these sort of hidden parts of things? As a kid, I was always getting in trouble for drawing. It's something that I did all the time. You know, I couldn't help it. I draw on my hands. I draw on friends at schools. I draw on my clothes. I draw on their clothes. I draw on the back of my school books. And I would get in trouble for it all the time. So in a way, you know, 
as my character became more reserved, so did my drawing, and my drawing would hide. And so I would end up drawing behind my curtains or, like you said, under my bed because those are places that people weren't going and and the drawing wasn't exposed and I wouldn't get in trouble if people couldn't see what I was drawing, but I was still able to, like, get it out and and do what I felt like I needed to. When did you realise that you were dyslexic? It's funny, I didn't realise I was dyslexic until my first week at St Martin's. So... First week of art school at St. Martin's, I was writing some paperwork and my friend sitting next to me looked at that and said, (laughs) have you gone and got a dyslexic test? And I said, no, I'm not dyslexic. And she's like, I think you are. And so being in an environment where absolutely everyone was dyslexic, it was quite apparent. And so I wasn't, I was quite old, actually. I think I was probably 20, 20, 21 then. And I, I... At that time, I reflected back and remembered all the school breaks that I missed because I was in detention, because I couldn't pass my spelling tests. And and all all those times I got in trouble for not, you know, reading fast enough. And and so it was kind of, I was conflicted when I found out about it because I I also realised that people hadn't paid enough attention beforehand and they punished me for their lack of paying attention and, and seeing this. And then on the other hand, I felt like, oh, it's a superpower because now I know that it exists and I know why I do these things in the way that I do them. And I know I'm surrounded by lots of people who can relate to this superpower. And so, you know, there was a a plus and a positive side to it, too. Before we start talking about your 20s, because I could easily go (laughs) straight with you into into that experience. I do want to ask you one more thing about things that you were drawing as a kid. Can you tell us what you wrote on the back of your bedroom door when you were a teenager? Yeah, so on the back of my door, I wrote these words, and they're quite simple words. Who are you? 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 And actually, I had them on my door later in life, too. And it was a reminder, not even a reminder. It was a question. It was a challenge. It was an adventure, you know, to ask myself and ask ourselves, who are you every day, I think is quite a profound and important thing. And so... As a kid, not knowing who I was, not looking like anyone around me, not thinking like anyone around me and feeling quite lost all the time, it was something that almost grounded me in a way, this this bigger existential question of just asking ourselves, who are you? And later in life, I, I learned to just lose some of the letters. So instead of the, you know, the who are you, the first three letters are W-A-Y. So now I can think about, well, actually, this is a more practical way to think about that question. How am I finding my way in life? How are you finding your way in this life? And for a lot of us, it's an easier question to tackle because it's practical. I'm finding my way in life through this language of words and lines and drawing. You're finding your way in life through design and conversations and and everything else. And, And so it's become almost like a theme or a philosophy within my work now. With who are you, the first three letters of each word spell out way. And then you also have another phrase, are you you and you are you. And I kind of love that the first three letters of you are you spells yay. Yeah, it's kind of a little cheesy. Oh, I don't think so. But but it becomes a philosophy, you know, I'm finding my way to yay. You know, yay is this place of celebration. Yay is this place of understanding. Yay is this place of knowing and loving self. 
But Ye is also this place that when we get there, we also realize that there's so much more to be done. There's so much work and learning and growing and understanding that still needs to be done. And so it's important to go back to that first question of who are you and ask it in a new, unique way. And that's where the words are you you or the question are you you comes from. And are you you is kind of like a or I it doesn't really make any sense, but it shouldn't because you're you're on that path again. And so so when you think you know yourself, you have to question yourself again, but question yourself in a different way. Otherwise, you're not learning, you're not growing, you're not progressing, you're not understanding that we're on this journey. When I met you, I think it was last year at Jessica Walsh's Ladies Wine and Design, you gave me uh, one of your stickers that you have in your pocket. <laughs> Who are you? And and I look at that every day. It's now in my closet where I pull out what I'm going to wear every day, and it's on a little shelf. And I look at it every day, and I ask myself every day. So so thank you for that. So let's go back to 21. You're 21 or 22 when you created your first character, the hanged robot. Um, and you've described him in the following way. He was a character that was unhappy, hence the frowning face, but he had a heart. He had a noose around his neck as well, but it had been cut free. He had a chance to create a new future for himself. He was lonely and upset, but had a heart and wanted to see the world. Chantel, you've said that the hangman summed up who you were at that age— angry, upset, and feeling like you had no control over your future, but you had a heart. How did you first come upon the idea of Hangman? How did, how did he emerge from you? I think as close as I can get to the answer is that at the time I had a, a roommate, my friend Dyskate, and Dyskate, he was a b-boy and he was tagging. And, you know, when we'd walk home at night, he would tag and I would, you know, watch out or just wait for him. And then at some point I got bored with waiting for him and I thought, oh, I want to do something too. And so I started to create or draw or throw up Hangman and I I don't really remember where it started. I think it was something that I was just sketching or just doodling or just making before that because one of my first, and maybe I can dig this out at some point, one of my first business cards that I made when I was at art school was a, a wooden cutout Hangman that came with a little noose. And um, so I know it was around before I started throwing it up, but I can't really remember exactly where it came from. But I, I do remember it It was a character that I, like you said, it, it summed up how I felt and who I was at that time. You know, I knew that there was this potential, but I was just so angry and, and lost. And maybe it's just a part of being an art student or being in your late teens or your early 20s is that you you do go through this kind of depressed, angry phase and, and, and Hangman, wherever he came from, seemed to sum all that up. When did you stop drawing him? I stopped drawing Hangman when I moved to Japan, I think. So when I got to Japan, there was this sense of relief or a sense of a new adventure. And, and I had to leave a lot of this baggage or this anger that I had growing up in London behind when I moved to Japan because I felt in a way that Japan and Tokyo didn't do anything to me. I didn't have the right to be angry at Japan. I didn't have the right to go around defacing its walls. It didn't know me, didn't do anything wrong to me. And, and so I felt like when I moved there, in a way, I had left Hangman in London. 
before Hangman, but while you were in high school, Bexley Heath, I believe, yeah. um, you were very into sports. You mentioned running. You thought at that point you might even become a pro athlete. Where did the athlete and the artist begin to separate? Yeah, so, you know, pro athlete, that, that sounds like so professional right now. But, you know, when I was I was running for my school and I was running for a team and I, I was running the 200 meters and I was always fast. It was something that I was good at. You know, I was always the fastest girl in the school. That's amazing. I was always the slowest. <laughs> it's good being the fastest because people respect you. Yeah, and, uh, it is. And, you know, there's, there's a certain <laughs> sense of accomplishment that comes with that. It's and weird. cachet. Yeah. I was a bit, I had a bit of an ego when I, you know, I used to be like, I'm going to beat you. There's no point me run, even running. So I think what happened is probably when I turned 16, 17, you know, I got a boyfriend, I started exams, I stopped training as much. And, you know, to be a successful athlete at that time, that's the only thing that can exist. That's the only thing that you can be doing. And I didn't have the discipline. I just didn't. And I didn't know anyone around me that was that disciplined about anything themselves. So it felt okay. It felt okay if I just didn't follow up and do this thing that I had some talent at. It's interesting that you say you didn't think you had enough discipline because looking at your career in art, it seems like you're one of the most disciplined people on the planet. So maybe it was just the passion wasn't there, not the lack of discipline. Yeah, I think, you know, the path's already there and we're on it. And it just wasn't meant to be because I believe that I can and will have much more impact doing what I do now than I would have if I became a professional runner for a few years and then changed careers after that. Is it true that one of your teachers at high school told you not to apply to art school because you wouldn't get in? Yeah, and I, I don't really fault him for that in a way. I do and I don't. You know, it's like you want to be realistic in a way with your students and knowing, I guess, kind of where I'm from and in a way, I guess, one my teacher wanting me to do something more practical. He was just like, you know, don't don't do this art stuff. Like, don't go to art school. You're not going to get in anyway. You might as well go on a path where there's perhaps more certainty and, you know, maybe you can get a job doing that. And so that's more suited to you. So don't do that. Saying that at the time, there wasn't anyone telling me anything else that I could do. And and I've always been a little bit defiant. So if someone's going to tell me I can't do something, there's something in me that wants to prove them wrong. At the time, I don't even think I really wanted to go to art school. I just wanted to prove him wrong. And so I applied and then I got in. But yeah, basically that happened. And does he know what's become of you? No, no idea. Actually, I've spoken we to... Should, we should find him. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke to a couple of older art teachers and, and they, they've heard this too. And, and they're like, oh, you know, he was a grumpy whatever anyway. Um, but, you know, I've also been back to my old school Bexley Heath School and spoken there. It's now it's actually called Bexley Academy, and that was a strange experience because I went back and I said, "Hey, like, I was dyslexic when I was here, and you all punished me, and and it felt horrible. But now you're inviting me back to speak to your students, and and they said, you know, at that time, you know, it's it wasn't that good of a system, but we're better now. And and then I said, you know, you didn't even encourage me to do art, but now you want me to come back and encourage these younger students to do art and you know they said well now we're focusing more on the creative kind of subjects and and you'll be a great kind of influence and inspiration to them 
And so did you go? I did, I did. And it was a really weird experience going back and, you know, walking through some of the, the old hallways and stuff. And just looking at these kids who were like 13, 14 and have no idea where the rest of their lives will go. And, and just also imagining myself back there as a 13, 14-year-old that had no idea, couldn't even imagine the life that I had now. And, and it was a strange, reflective experience. It's sort of amazing to look at the trajectory of a life and see yourself back in that time when you sort of feel who you are now but know that you were so different then, but you're still the same person, and wondering when those changes actually happen. Yeah, those changes creep up as us. Yeah. Yeah. You studied graphic design at Central St. Martin's, and you had a specialization in illustration, but at that point, did you want to be a graphic designer? Graphic design seemed like the safe bet. Mm. I didn't want to do fine art because I thought fine art was for rich kids and, you know, kids that didn't really need to get a job at the end of art school. And so graphic design for me seemed also like the most practical, the most functional, the most logical choice I could make. And so at St. Martin's, like you said, I, I studied graphic design and then I, I veered into specializing into illustration because that's where it felt like I had a little bit of freedom to draw and, and you know, go back to that thing that I like to do. At that point, you had suppressed a lot of your feelings and issues about growing up in Thamesmead. Um, and then in your third year at school, you dedicated a major project to it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And you ultimately said through this project, you feel like you came into your own. Yeah, so it, it was funny being at St. Martin. So my first year, I, I, you know, I went and I did projects where I swang milk around and I did little performances. And, you know, it was all conceptual, non conceptual nonsensical stuff. And I remember turning up for my critique or my portfolio review at the end of the first year, and I just turned up with myself. And I said, you know, I am my work. And awesome. It's very, very St. Martin's. <laughs> what and kind of grade did you get for that? I have not, I didn't even show up to see my grade because I didn't think it mattered to me at that time. And the second year, was I was all over the place. I, I just didn't know what I was doing. And then the third year, I felt like I had to just deal with some stuff that I had going on with my family and, and also just accepting all of that. You know, you're at St. Martin's. It's like one of the most famous art schools in the world. There's people flying in from everywhere. There's people from all these sorts of backgrounds. And and for the first time, you're really exposed to how other people live or think or family units or ambitions and imaginations. And so I think I had at that time a struggling with a lot of like where I was from and, and accepting that. And, you know, I think being very angry at my mum and all these things and the only way I felt like I could deal with all of that, all of this stuff going on, was to do a project about it. And so I did this project where I looked at Thamesmead almost like um, an experiment and kind of my role in that. So there was this very dry report almost that I wrote about Thamesmead and kind of a very analytical distance perspective of it. And then there was this very personal, creative part where I found photography of myself at different ages from being like a baby to a young child around different parts of the estate and then teaming those up with the present-day, almost derelict versions of what it became and also just kind of the hopeful imagination that, you know, they had when they built this kind of housing estate. And so I got a lot of stuff out 
And I think it was an extremely personal but an extremely important project. And I don't think if I did that project, I would be where I am now because I had to just dive in. You've said that even if you went to art school, you most likely were not given the tools you need to be a self-sufficient, successful artist. Do you still feel that way? In a way, I'm, I'm hoping it's changed. And, you know, maybe a lot of people out here, you know, a lot of younger students can tell me if it's changed. But you go to art school, even, you know, you're learning graphic design, you're learning illustration, you're learning fine art, and then you graduate and you realize that you know nothing about negotiating, contracts, taxes, consignments. You know, you don't know that you should be sociable or that you should do any of these things. And, and so it almost feels like it's done on purpose. You know, we put artists through art school and then we spit them out and then they're taken advantage of if they don't have the access. And so, you know, you have the artist that makes the art, the living artist that makes the art, and then you have the consumer and the people who consume the art. And then you have all these people in between that want to say that they can take some of that money or take some of that power or take some of that status or take some of that prestige. And so what that does is it shifts the power from the artist. And there's this like weird notion that we've romanticized about the artists is that they should be these creative people who are separate from commerce and finance and money, which might have been true a very, very long time ago. But now as, as artists, as creatives, we have to pay rent, you know, we have to pay our taxes. And we understand that when our work goes to a gallery or an institution, it's commerce. And for the people who don't believe that it has anything to do with money, they've been blinded. So when I meet artists that say, oh, I don't like to talk about money, I'm like, well, why not? Well, you know, it takes away from the purity of what I'm doing. I say, well, that's BS, you know, like you've been totally fooled because people are making money from you. And so I don't think there's anything wrong in educating yourself about all the aspects of your business. I'm not trying to say you have to be a lawyer or you have to be a CPA, but you should at least be knowledgeable because then that knowledge gives you the power to make adequate and responsible decisions for yourself. And so I think now we're seeing more and more where these courses or experts are coming into these fields. But for the you know first 10 years, 15 years of myself as an artist, you learn by your mistakes. You know, you learn when people take advantage of you. And then you make sure that that doesn't happen again. And so it's unfortunate that it's like that. But, you know, what I've also noticed now as an artist that's fairly successful, whatever that means, is that we have this built-in reflex for artists where if you become successful, we now we call you a sellout. Mm. It's like, you want me to wait till I die and then I can be successful because then people can make more of a profit from me because they I, then they don't have to pay me at all? I don't know. So it's a bizarre career. It's a bizarre industry. It's probably one of the very few, like, unregulated industries. But at the end of the day, I'm a huge advocate for people exploring all the aspects that are involved in the art making. You were the first person in your family to finish school. You graduated at the top of your class. At that time, Chantelle, you didn't think you could break into the art world because you didn't have the connections that some of your other classmates had. So you decided to leave it all behind and you moved to Japan in 2004 and for a time, stopped making art. Why? 
It's funny, I still don't think I broke into the art world, but, you know, that's, I guess, a different story. Um, you know, I, I moved to Japan and I just wanted to run away from it all. I graduated with a first-class honours, not that that means anything now. I feel like from Central St. Martin's, big fancy art school, and I saw that anyone that was getting a job or an opportunity it was because of someone that they were related to, and I realised, oh, that's how it works, and and I was working a bunch of part-time jobs, and I just didn't want to keep doing that. So I had this interest in Japan that had been there for a few years based on just some of the really good friends that I made in London from Japan. And so I thought I'd rather be teaching English in Japan than working several part-time jobs in London. And so I, I went to Japan, and probably for a year I stopped making, I stopped creating, I stopped drawing, I stopped writing, because I think I just needed a complete break from it all. But one thing I, I discovered is that if that seeds in you, it doesn't go anywhere. You can ignore it, but it creeps up eventually because that's just a part of your DNA. It's a part of your thread. It's a part of your operating system in a way. And so even not doing it for a year, it was there and I could feel it. And then I just had to just start drawing again. You initially lived in Nagoya. Uh, you moved to Tokyo but not speaking Japanese, I understand you felt really lost and alone. You eventually quit your job and moved to a town an hour away. I read how you first became yourself. You first realized you were gay. What was coming out in Japan like for you? It's funny when I think about this now. So I moved to Japan in 2003. So before Facebook, before Instagram. Before for YouTube. Before YouTube, before smartphones. And it was probably one of those last times in the existence of the planet where you could go halfway around the world and be totally disconnected from anyone and everyone. And so moving to Japan, I was in a position where I wasn't living up to the stereotypes that people put on me and I wasn't living up to the projections or playing the roles of what people projected on me. And we can all relate to this. You know, you go home to your family and you fall into a role. Oh, my you God, yes. hang out with your friends and you fall into that role. But now you go where no one knows you and no one's calling you or texting you in your pocket because that we don't do that yet. And so for the first time, you really get to start with a blank canvas, so to stay. You, you get to be like, wait, who am I? And so... You know, growing up in Thamesmead, it's it was a very racist and a very homophobic space. And so I never imagined that I was gay because I saw what happened to those people. And so it just wasn't even a question for me. It's like, I'm not one of them. And now being in a place where it's like, oh, no one's projecting on me. I'm not living up to any stereotypes. And I have this blank canvas to just really explore and think about and live the way I want to. And be free for the first time. And and so I think with that came a lot of reckoning and a lot of self-exploring and a lot of being very true and honest with myself. And, and that was one of the things that came up where I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. And, uh, you know, and I, I would talk or write to some friends in London and I'd be like, I think I like women. And they're like, you know, duh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, But it, it's something that I think also just to survive, I didn't let that show or, or even, you know, question it. And um, so I'm very thankful that I went to this place and I had this space to kind of go there and, and, and discover that. 
How did you begin to start drawing again? I found a sketchbook, uh, an accordion sketchbook that my friend Christiana gave me as a leaving gift for when I moved to Japan. And I was like, oh, I opened it up and it was an accordion and it just looked interesting. And I just sat down and started drawing. And then that was it. It just kind of continued from there. In 2006, you began doing live drawing on a Wacom tablet in Japanese clubs. Uh, The images were projected onto the club's walls in real time. How did this even come about as something to consider or do? Yeah, so actually a couple years before that, so I started to do it in more of an analog way. So I was drawing in this tiny like moleskin or like accordion book that my friend gave me and and I was using a 0.05 pen, so, you know, like a really, really fine graphic drawing pen. And that's what I was doing at that time, and that's what the only thing I was really interested in drawing at that time. And friends would see these drawings, and a friend said, hey, like I'm doing an event at this venue, like I'd love you to, you know, maybe do a drawing on a canvas next to the band who's playing. And I said, well, I'm only interested in drawing like this at the moment, and it's really small. And so we figured out that I would draw under a visual presenter or like an OHP, and then we would have that projected behind and on the band, which made sense because for me that made more sense because I'm like, we're all like TV nation kids and if it's on the screen, then we instantly connect the music and the visuals. And so I did that for the first time and it really changed my life and it started my career. And and the first time I did it was like some weird Japanese avant-garde band in some basement and the music was really strange. I'd never heard anything like that before. And it was like, you know, and so I was like, well, okay, I just got to draw because I noticed when I wasn't drawing, there was nothing moving on the screen. And then you have an audience watching you. And so you just have to draw, you just have to draw, you just have to draw. And then you feel like, oh, I need to be creative with this. And you bring your hands in and magnifying glasses and post-it notes. And then suddenly you're creating this whole little world. And 45 minutes later, you see this vast drawing there. For the first time, it put me in a position where I didn't have time to think about what I was doing. I didn't have time to hesitate. I didn't have time to be insecure. I only had time to be me. And then now you imagine you repeat that and you repeat that and you repeat that and repeat that. You can start to extract the common themes, the common lines, the common threads. And that became the basis of my style, of my identity, of my fingerprint. And slowly that evolved into what you mentioned in like 2006, I was invited to do that, but in like a bigger Japanese mega club. And so in the giant club, you don't want maybe the projection or the reflection of a white sketchbook in the club because it's going to be too bright. And so I thought, well, what about if I use drawing software and then at least the background can be black? And so I I got a little Wacom tablet or, or Wacom tablet and some drawing software. And for the first time, I remember going to the club and for three hours... I just drew with the eraser to the beat and I zoomed in and I zoomed out and I moved it around. And then over time, this evolved into a whole career of being a live club illustrator. And I brought color into it and I would use different mixers and different layers to it. And it became the foreground of an evening versus the background. So sometimes like when people are doing visuals, you know, they mix all these clips together and there's movies together and then there's a tunnel and then there's a rabbit and then there's someone like, there's some big lips or something. And you're like, why? And it's very much the background. 
But when you're drawing and you draw into the beat, it's relevant. It's in real time. There's a connection there. There's an experience there. It can't be repeated because it's for that time, in that moment, in that place. And so it felt very present. And I didn't see anyone else doing that at the same time or at that time. And so I ended up being a beta tester for Wacom and testing all their new tablets. And I got voted top 10 VJ in the world a couple of times. And there was all this um, kind of hate on all the VJ forums that Chantel's not a real VJ. Like, why is she winning all these awards? And so it was kind of an incredible journey. After five years of doing this, you decide, I want to move to the United States. And you spent all your money on immigration lawyers. You got an artist visa. But it also meant you really couldn't take a normal, in quotes, mundane job to support yourself. And you were incredibly broke. You spent the first year and a half living on your friends' sofas, on their couches. What was that like for you, going from this massive sort of accidental superstar career to now being in New York, broke, living on a sofa? It's kind of the cliche, like, New York story, right? It it feels like everyone has to come here (laughs) and be broke and sleeping on the couch. But um, it was extremely humbling. And um, I think in a way, it's also very comfortable. You know, I'm comfortable struggling. I'm comfortable when things are tough. And so in Japan, you know, I was building this career up and I was building this success and I was building this fan base. And I never experienced that before. And in a way, I didn't know what to do with it. Why did you just walk away from it? I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready for it. And I think a part of me was like really naive because I just thought, oh, I had this career in Japan, so I can just come here and have a career here and like find ways of making money and stuff here. But then I got here, I realized that no one knows me here. And VJing doesn't really exist here in New York. And and everyone's an artist. And if people don't know who you are, they don't care who you are. And I'm stuck. <laughs> and so my friends were kind enough to let me sleep on their couches. And um, it was incredibly tough. But like I said, I feel like there's something comfortable in that struggle for me. Things changed dramatically in sort of one rather epic week. You got two phone calls, one to do live drawing at MoMA and the other to do a guest spot on the TV show Gossip Girl. And it was then that you began getting invitations to talk about art and creativity. French Glamour dubbed you New York's coolest it girl. What did that feel like after such a perilously tough time? Yeah, it was it was interesting. I think probably no one even remembers those two projects that I did. But, um, you know, the first one was, yeah, doing... Some of the projections like I was doing in Japan, I just started to do them here. So, you know, some of my advice I always give to younger artists is create your own opportunities and do that by using what you have access to. And so when I got really stuck, I was like, well, let me create my own opportunities and do that by using what I had access to. And at that time, it was a friend space. And so in a friend space, I started to do the projection stuff and do my own shows and invite people to see that. And very grassroots, they would invite their friends and their friends and their friends. And eventually someone sees it and says, hey, I work for MoMA, would love to do that at a friends and family event. And, you know, we're going to pay you to do that. And and so for me, that was really incredible. Or, you know, we're from a TV show and it's called Gossip Girl. And I didn't know what that was at the time. And I was like, great, they're going to pay me to come and do this projection thing. And, and so 
It was a it was a great place and space to be in. I didn't think it would change my career or my life, but it felt like a first step to something. You also covered the walls and the ceiling and more of the Brooklyn apartment that you were renting. How did that go well with your landlord? Yeah, so, you know, when I first moved into like my my new rented room or almost floor on this brownstone, I was in a, a place where, you know, I, I felt like I had my own space and I felt safe for the first time. And I feel like when I feel safe, I want to like claim that space in a way. And so I asked my landlords, do you mind if I draw on my walls? And they were like, sure, just don't go downstairs. And then that was it. So it was something that I could do when I came home or when I woke up, you know, I'd have pens next to my bed and I'd just wake up and just do some drawing. And it, it felt good. And, and it was also, it's kind of nice to wake up in your own world sometimes. And uh, so it, it was good. It was good at the time. You talked about using pens. You're not a pencil fan. What happens if you make a mistake? You'll hear me often say there's no such thing as mistakes. You have to just learn to enjoy the process. And for me, that makes complete sense. So if I'm drawing on a 200-foot wall or my shirt or cars or, you know, something where there's a lot of pressure, that pressure doesn't exist because I feel like I'll never make a mistake because... As long as you have good intention behind what you're doing and as long as you're not forcing anything, you're just allowing it to be what it needs to be and loving and enjoying the process, that's it. Yeah, so there's no such thing as mistakes. Just enjoy the process. You've said that your goal is to master the black line and make that into a whole world, making that into a whole universe. What about the black line continues to captivate you? So it's, it goes back to this idea of starting my career in Japan and, and being in this space where you see people trying to really master one thing over a long period of time and not rushing and not being distracted and not trying everything. And so just understanding, well, what's one thing in my life perhaps I could master? Well, what if I work really hard and practice a lot at a line? And we all know, like, when we first draw a line, there's perhaps as hesitation in there. Perhaps it's not as confident as it should be. But with practice, there's confidence that comes with that line. There's personality that comes from that line. But also there's that line becomes recognizably you and yours. And it's just this, like, very simple concept for me that imagine everyone in the world has their own mark and can create a line. But what if you look at this black line? What if you look at this combination of lines and you say that's Chantel's and then now you think about the work that goes behind that so you've got to the point where you've drawn a line and that line is recognizably yours even in its simplicity there's a profound amount of work and history that is behind that absolutely there are very few people that have a recognizable line and when you come upon someone that can evoke emotion, pathos, heartbreak in a line, people like you, Alison Bechdel, Christoph Neiman, there's maybe a handful of people that I know that can create a line and an emotion at the same time. Mm -hmm. In the years since you broke out in the United States, you've done some truly amazing work. You found great success in collaborating with big brands. 
Um, you've worked with Maybelline, Warby Parker, Nike, Tiffany, Puma. You've worked with 1800 Tequila, and that's just really the tip of the iceberg. How do you regard the power of collaboration? Collaborations where you really grow, where you really learn, and also products and things. I think there's tons of potential there. So as an artist, I think about, well, if I'm going to create something, who will see it? Or if I'm going to have these messages, then who really gets to digest these messages? And then I think about, well, if I collaborate, there's lots of things that can happen. I get to explore someone else's messages and someone else's personality and someone else's journey. And also we might get to create a project or a product that I wouldn't be able to do by myself. And then also on top of that, we get to expose that to a demographic that's not my demographic. And so I think with collaboration, there's also this sense that you have to put your ego aside and just explore the conversation or the creativity or the connection between the two of you or the many of you. And so there's there's so much that you can get from a collaboration. And um, I think it's a really good practice. One of the things that really fascinated me as I was working on the preparation for the show and, and in my research was how important saying no is to you. And you say no a lot. You say no to brands and collaborations, but you also say no to collectors. Talk about the power of that and how you were able to get to a place where you could say no. That's something that's really hard for me. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I heard this somewhere. I can't remember where I heard it. But if you say, if you're saying yes to something, it means you're probably saying no to something else. And the other way around, if you're saying no to something, you're probably saying yes to something else. And so I think where this came from, from me in the first place, is that I've always used my instincts to guide me. And so it was almost like another philosophy in a way where if you feel this instant gut reaction and it's a no, say no. If you feel this gut reaction and it's a yes, say yes. And so basically that's how you live your life. You say yes to yes and you say no to no. And what you might find is that for long periods of your life, you're saying no, 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 because you're not in the right place and you're not on the right path. But eventually you get to this place where you start to say yes, yes, yes. Yes. And so I think just really homing in on that and practicing the no's first. And I think when we first met, you know, I, I mentioned that you should try and collect no's every day. And, yes. and so, you know, go out there in the world and be like, you know, can I get a free coffee? And they say no. And you're like, yes. You know, and, <laughs> and just be comfortable with what a no feels like and, and almost searching for the no's because then through searching for the no's and collecting those no's, the yes becomes more apparent. And you're, you're almost training that yes muscle by collecting all these no's. And um, yeah. Do you ever worry that if you say no too much, there won't be any other opportunities? Yeah, but then you're coming from a place of fear, right? Yes. And that's yes. not where we operate. It's also like collaboration. Going back to that point, I feel like sometimes like, well, if I collaborate, it means I'm giving something away or I'm losing my magic or there's a sense of loss. And there's only a sense of gain with collaboration. And so you don't ever feel like you're losing yourself in the no, process? No. And I feel like a lot of these things I say no to maybe I'm giving someone else the opportunity to say yes to it. And so maybe it's just not my time 
just understanding that, especially with design, especially with art, there's tons of abundance out there. And if it's not you now, it might be you in the future if it's meant to be. And so it's okay to say no. Let's talk about a recent project, your transformation of the New York City Ballet, in which you installed an utterly massive piece or pieces on the floor and the walls of their building in Lincoln Center. What was it like to work at that scale and at that location? So it's interesting. Years ago, I remember being on the subway and seeing the posters for the the art series for the New York City Ballet. And I was like, oh, you know, like, I'd love to do that, you know. And then, and then you have this sense of like, oh, well, why is it not me? And I, I also at that time when I saw those posters felt like that was for really successful artists. And I was I would never probably be that. And then years later, you know, they're asking me to do that. And so it was a really incredible project and a project I'm extremely proud of because I feel like it was a thoughtful project. And it started with conversations. And I, I sat down and I talked to a whole number of New York City ballet dancers from new to the company to the oldest dancer in the company, asking them this question of, of who are you? And with that, that gave me almost the foundation or the ammunition or the the material that I wanted or needed to then go in and do this exhibition or this installation because that felt like the right way to approach it versus as an artist coming in and being like, I'm going to bring this thing to your space. And so it started from the inside out versus the outside in. What kinds of things did you hear from the dancers about who they thought they are? It's such a demanding career that they have and life that they have. And and so firstly, it was very interesting to hear that how they all discovered ballet and obviously they they all discovered it at very young ages and then it was interesting how they deal with injury how they deal with the vigorous rehearsals it was interesting them describing who they are without the dance and without ballet what did you hear what did they think you know i think one of my questions was where do you start and the ballet or the dance end a lot of them felt like this is my life and this will always be my life. And I think a lot of them felt like this is what I'm doing now. And when it's done, I'm done. You know, I'll find a completely different career. Beyond companies and organizations, you've collaborated with a fair amount of individuals as well. And one of the most interesting is Kendrick Lamar. Uh, you worked with him at Art Basel. How did that collaboration come to fruition? Yeah, just like most collaborations, you know, the ballet, Kendrick, is that someone... So Kendrick just called you, hey, Someone emails Chantel. you. Someone emails you. Girl, you know. let's do this. It, it never works the other way around. Can you imagine? I'm like, yo, Kendrick, I'm an artist. You should hire me. Or or New York City Ballet, like, I love what you do. And I saw posters in the subway and it should be me. It doesn't work that way. I, I feel like it's tough to convince people that they should believe in you. Mm. Either they've seen you and they, they get it and then they can come to you. and It's I've, like not being able to show until you're shown. Exactly. It was a really great collaboration. We basically, we met and we sat down and we had a conversation. And through that conversation, we just started creating. And Kendrick made me some beats. And from those beats, I started some drawing. And then that drawing inspired him to create more beats. And so there was this nice feedback loop. And then beyond that, we did a concert together at Art Basel. But I think the most interesting thing that I took from that collaboration was just the process of creating and so I got to see how Kendrick makes beats and comes up with the rhymes or the words and 
it was amazing because I, I also play music and, you know, I, I would never think that the process that I have for creating music or finding words would be the similar or same as Kendrick, but it was. And so, you know, he would be playing beats and then almost like mumbling. But as he's mumbling, he's almost searching for the words that exist somewhere and pulling them into existence. And as a creative person, there's a similar process, especially with playing music. You know, you're playing it and the sound or the atmosphere or or something is pulling you towards the words that should exist in that moment. And, and sometimes almost the same with drawing. You did a project that I found incredibly fascinating. It was called Mind the Machine, which was a collaboration with the computational cognitive neuroscientist Sarah Schwetman, who created an algorithm that mimics your approach to drawing as it poses questions about authorship, originality, creativity, and you and Sarah trained a deep neural network to recognize recurrent elements of 300 of your drawings and identify key elements of your artistic identity, enabling it to learn your artistic style. And after the training, the deep network could predict how you would complete a given drawing. What was that like for you? So this, you know, it's it's interesting. I feel like I'm very brave sometimes as an artist with some of these collaborations and, and you also take a risk. So, you know, the outcome of this project in a way was about the mind and the machine and the person and the machine because in the end I think like the machine didn't predict what I was going to do. You know, the person predicted that the machine would know what I was going to do. And then at the end, you know, my collaborators were like, well, now we own your drawing. And I say, well, actually you don't. That was a collaboration that didn't end too well because there was almost, you know, I think with artificial intelligence, there's this kind of hype around what it can do. But it's, in, it's really important for artists to explore what it can do and what it does. But there is a risk involved there. And, and so that was a project or a collaboration where there was that risk and I was willing to take it. But then the outcome was, you know, it's not about the machine. It's about the mind or the intention behind the machines. There was this sense of your process being machine learnable. And I didn't think that was even remotely possible. Yeah. How could it possibly predict something that's improvised yeah. or made in the moment? But it's good to ask these questions. Yes, yeah. yes. On your website, under the original art section, you write, the relationship between an artist and a collector should be just that, a relationship. If you're interested in purchasing original artwork, Chantel would like to get to know you a little better through a series of questions that will ensure the work she creates goes to great people that will love and value it. And this comes back to the saying no. Um, do you turn a lot of collectors away? I do. You know, it's in a way it's smart, but in a way it's stupid because I, I end up with a lot of my own art and I have a lot of my own art. But I feel like, and, and people will argue or disagree with me on this, but as an artist, we are only going to make so much work in our lifetime. And maybe it's a bad kind of example, but it's like if you're adopting a dog, 
you know, you want it to go to a good home and you want it to have good parents that love it. And it's that, harder to adopt a dog than it is to <laughs> adopt a child. You know, you, you want that dog to go to a good home and, and I want my artwork to go to good homes and I, I don't want them to play a role in the secondary market and they, 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 it will at some point, but right now it's not necessary. And as a living artist, you know, maybe I am too, too clinging to my own work, but at the same time, I love it when it goes to a family or to a person or to a group that really love it and they get it and they enjoy it. And for me, that's what it's about. As an artist, it's about creating this connection and this experience. And and even just the process of someone filling out this form and, you know, I ask you like, you know, like, who are you or why do you want my work? Where are you going to put it? What's your idea of freedom? What did you want to be as a child? Like, where are you in the world? Like, what's your budget? Um and so already it's not about this monetary exchange of like, take this and I'll take your money. It's, it's like, no, like, let's, you tell me a little bit more about yourself because I want to get to know you because you're going to be a part of my family. And my work is going to be your work and become a part of your family. And so I think it works. And the people that now are a part of my family, I know about them and I've met their families and I've we've explored and had many conversations. And and for me, I I like that process. Paper Magazine said this about you. Chantel Martin has shattered expectations, redefining what constitutes art. What are your thoughts on that? I don't really know what they mean. (laughs) Do you think it has anything to do with your avoiding traditional gallery representation? It's, It's weird. I think it's an odd comment in a sense, but I think it also does make sense. So the the way that i approach things is just it's just very direct and it is what it is so i think sometimes the art world is a big facade and a lot of it is kind of made up because you know we have to make these things seem really important and we have to sell them for lots of money so we need an air of mystery or we need an air of importance or we need an air of arrogance around it and I don't have to play into that as an artist. And also, I feel like we have this world where it's like, well, what are you? You know, are you doing this type of work or this type of work or this type of work? Because if you're doing more than one, we don't know how to sell you or how to promote you or where to place you. And my approach is, in a way, I'm going to do anything I like, anything I'm excited about, in any type of medium, in any type of industry, because that's what I want to do. And I think that's where it is non-traditional. So you find that I am working with brands. I am working with museums. I am working with neuroscientists. I am working with airlines. I am working with non-profits and schools. And because at that time, these are the things that I'm interested in. And these are the things I think I can have an impact in. And these are the things where I think there's a possibility for collaboration. And so in a way, I'm ignoring the rules that people have put there. And I'm just saying, I want to do what I want to do. And I don't care where it falls. The important thing is is that when I look back at my career, I'm proud of all the things that I've done. And those things make sense because those things have helped me grow. And those are the things that are helping me understand more about myself and who I am and that journey. I have one last question for you, Chantel. And it's a bit of a woo-woo question, which I ordinarily don't like to do. But this one felt real and important. You've been on a quest to document your projects and your life in video form. Um, You've said it's all about leaving a thread for generations to come. And so my question is, what do you hope 
people take away from this tapestry? It's a big question to it finish is. with. Yes. I hope that people take away this sense of freedom to express themselves, freedom of expression. And I also hope that they take away this idea of, of asking themselves, who are they? And asking themselves these bigger internal questions. And I often ask a crowd of people, if I'm to ask you this question of who are you, and you're to answer without saying what you do and where you're from or the roles that you play in your life, how would you answer? And so in a way, I feel like this career, this journey is a search for the vocabulary and the words to figure out who we are as people at the core. And in a way, I'm using myself as an example of that. And I'm not sure where that will go. I'm not sure where that will take me. But what I do know is that it will create a lot of connection. It will create a lot of experience. And it will create a lot of art and conversation. And that's the journey. Chantel Martin, thank you so much for taking us on this journey with you, making the world so incredibly interesting. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much. You can find out more about Chantel Martin and see some of her work at chantelmartin.art. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie slash millman. That's d.rip slash debbie dash millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.